0: My name is Robert Schreiner and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host,
1: Jay Franzi.
0: Well hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi and if you are new here this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week we get to talk with one of Nashville's finest engineers. We get to talk with Tony Cottrell. Tony has worked with such greats as Ronnie Millsap, Exile, and Diamond Rio and tonight we get to talk to him about how he got a start in the industry how he transitioned from a musician to an engineer, and we'll take a deep dive into how he balances the studio and the road. Now, I first met Tony back in 1989. It was at the recording workshop in Ohio. He was actually my first engineering instructor, and I ran into him again years later at the SAE Institute in Nashville, where he hired me to be an instructor. He truly is a great guy, and I can't wait to talk to him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please, head over to JFranzi.com. Now let's get started. Tony, sir, how are you?
1: Howdy, howdy, howdy. Glad to be here, Jay. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it is my pleasure, sir. I'm happy to have you here. I mean, I know we go way back, but there are a lot of stories that I want to hear. (laughs) So I'm very excited where this night's going to take us. Yeah, me too. But I mean, normally I would like to just start off with how your career started, but I know you have a, a background that started a little rough. Is that something you mind talking about?
1: Um. Well, thanks for asking, Jay. There's not many people that, that know yeah, how difficult things were kind of in the beginning, and, and I've never really told this story. And, you know, it may sh- shed some light on my personality, you know, kind of hardcore sometimes. Before I was 10 years old, the, the innocence of the world was kind of extinguished. For me, I grew up fast. I came from a family of eight kids. I was the youngest of eight, but In um, 1964, uh, my sister Jenna died of a brain aneurysm. She was 15 years old. Of course, I was really young, didn't really totally understand what was going on at that time. And then two years later, in 1966, my brother Georgie got killed in uh, Vietnam, hostile fire explosive devices. And then in 68, my sister Betty, another two years later, died of throat cancer so all within a six uh, year time frame before i was ever like i say 10 years old we we had three three tragedies in our family along with my parents getting divorced and our home burning down to the ground and i don't know it, it didn't scar me or anything like that but it was life kind of smacking you in the in the face they at an early age, you know, but anyway, that's a kind of, that's a story. I'm not trying to get anybody to feel sorry for me. I think, you know, you know, uh, in our, in our youth, it just establishes a lot of who we are, you know, but I, I was determined, you know, I was determined to try to make something happen. Betty was the one who exposed me to music when I was really young. This was music during the, during the sixties. Well, I didn't really realize I was really, I was young, you know, but she was dressed me up and, uh, and 60s attire and and drag. Or can you say attire and drag in the same sentence? Now, I don't know. But, uh,
0: <laughs> sure. Why she, not?
1: Okay. why not? she? Uh, would take me along to these concerts and the in- energy you know that was going on there in the late '60s. It was just, it was, it was, it, it was contagious. You know, I remember she took me to see the Hermans Hermits at the High State Fair '66 or something like that. I mean, it was just you know when the whole Beatles thing and the British Invasion was going on. I didn't realize all this stuff, you know, but I see that girls are passing out. There's ambulances rushing them to the (laughs) hospital and medics everywhere. And and I'm like, what is going on here? Like,
0: I want to be part of this.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to see anybody getting hurt or anything, you know, but but anyway, so I bugged everybody in my family till I got a drum kit. I think 1967, I got a drum (laughs) kit. No, at that time, when the, the Beatles were in Ed Sullivan, few had any exposure to music at that time i mean that changed our lives it was just amazing it was just an amazing thing to see i know there's a lot of people like the beatles are overrated and you know that kind of a thing these days but i tell you what when you when they came on on tv it was just alien you know what i mean it was just another world i remember going shopping in in the town we lived in they had a ringo kit in in the window man I "Ah," you know just (laughs) just something you wanted so but you know my teen years kind of musically i guess a more of a product of the 70s you know through the teen years and technically studio wise i would say a product of the 80s you know which was through my 20s and when i started doing studio stuff and then through my 30s i i spent my 30s pretty much performing as a drummer and i mean i spent 30 years of my life as a drummer in, in this industry, and most people just know me as an audio guy, I, I, I think because prior to uh, social media, that's when I was a performer, so there's not really any social media posts that show me performing and things like that. But anyway, that's a little bit of background there, Jay, so I appreciate you letting me tell that.
0: <laughs> I appreciate you telling it. I mean, you talk about the 80s, and I just instantly think spandex. I mean, that's the, the time that I grew up as well. And
1: Exactly. Yeah, I
0: picture you know hair metal bands and things like that.
1: My wife's sisters are a little younger. Twin sisters are a little younger, and they talk about all oh, the great music in the eighties. And even there, there was, you know. And they'll talk about this band and that band, and I'll go seventies. How about seventies? You know. So I really, I mean, late late seventies. It was amazing. The music that was. I mean, you think about it. Aerosmith came out. ZZ Top came out. Kansas came out fog hat. I mean, you know, uh, what was going on in the seventies musically was so inspirational. I mean, if you had any, any, any musical ability, you know, it just kind of sucked you in. So. Well,
0: I remember it too. I mean, I grew up primarily in the eighties, high school days were in the eighties. Yeah. So to me, it was too over the top for me. It was just very yeah. poppy at the time. Even yeah. the rock bands, even Van Halen, turned into jump, bringing synthesizers in. There was a great song, and I mean, it was great and all, but it was just not for me. Yeah. But when I met you, you were you were a drummer, and I mean, I met you yeah. to to throw this far back, just uh-huh. talking about the eighties. I went to school at the Recording Workshop. It's the first engineering school that I went to, and you were my teacher. Mm-hmm. How did that all come about to you?
1: Wow, the recording workshop. I mean, I owe everything to that school. And, and of course, that's when I met you there. I 80, 89. The town is called Chilcothe in Ohio. It's a little town, 20,000 people, something like that, you know. And I've been playing music there. I mean, you know what? You know, it wasn't a large music scene by any means, but I was able to, you know, work in bands and things like that. Well, Joe Waters was the the owner of the recording workshop, and I worked at a a Sunoco station just up the road from where the school was. And Joe knew uh, my sisters and my brother and the hardships my family went through. So if you got somebody that's going to help push you along and give you, give you a break in in this business, I mean, it's, it's really needed. Joe was that guy. I remember him coming through that, through my gas station. I pumped his gas and this must've been, I don't know, (laughs) J 74 or something like that. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm over 50 now, but anyway, um, so uh, <laughs> Joe says, you need to come down and check out my studio, Tony. And I'm like, I would freaking love to, you know, name a time. He says, well, come on down tomorrow about eight o'clock or something. I get down to the studio and, and he's in there and he's recording and, and he's got these big uh, JBL monitors. I've never seen anything like it. You know, just, I guess, say a small town and got this this studio there and he was playing back probably something really wasn't that good but to me it was gold coming out of those speakers and it was contagious you know just to to hear playback and big studio monitors and seeing the band in the studio and everybody just really enjoying what they were doing and the creativity that was going on really uh, made an impression on me and so Joe the owner he was a, a national artist there for a while had a record out. He, You know, he was up, this is around like Kenny Rogers time and the gambler and things like that. So he put a band together to go on the road and do shows and hired me to play drums.
0: Oh, no kidding.
1: Yeah. Uh, you probably didn't know that, did you? No. Uh, so I was out doing uh, road work with Joe and then I'd also do his demo sessions. So he was a songwriter and he worked with a lot of Nashville Songwriters, even though we were in Ohio, there's a lot of Nashville people coming up. But so we would do demos on Joe's songs, and then he would bring people in, like, you know, I'm going to throw some names out there. This is going back a little bit, but he'd bring drummers in, like Jerry Kerrigan and James Stroud, up to the workshop. So there we are in Shilcothe, Ohio, being exposed to these amazing players. And Kerrigan would play the drums of the master session to the demo that I played on, even though it was the same parts it just it didn't feel the same (laughs) you know so that's when you kind of kind of learn that there's something special going on there it just isn't a matter of playing the pattern you know right so so joe gave me that break and he decided i guess this is around 83 and and he decided touring wasn't for him and and so I remember I was doing a, a session with him one day. That's when we were doing drum booths. And I was in the, in the drum booth and he was in the studio and he's gets on a back mic and says, Hey, Tony, how would you like to learn how to run all this gear? And, uh, you know, I, it was intimidating. I still wanted to be a drummer. I was afraid if I, if I went into audio school that it would take away from practicing and playing drums and things. But anyway, so he put me through school, audio school there at the recording workshop. And then after that, he gave me a job teaching. <laughs> And I was an instructor there for, I guess, almost 10 years. And, man, just learned so much about miking technique and met people from all over the world. It's, you know, you were there. I mean, we'd get people from Israel and, I mean, just all over the world coming to that little town of Masseyville, Ohio. It
0: was the only school there was at the time.
1: You know, a lot of people claim Claim this, but it really is the oldest recording school. It's the original. Yeah. It really is the original, and, and other people will say that their school was, but I, I can tell you that, I mean, some of those who claim to be the oldest school actually kind of took some of that curriculum and went other places and started a school with no names being mentioned. Right. So um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Well, I can tell you, too. I remember going
0: to that school. I read about it in the back of a, a music magazine, Yeah. and I just told my father, I said, this is what I want to do. Yeah. This is where I want to go. This is w- what I want. We had like maybe a day or two to make a decision. Uh, I said, I'm going. He said, okay. So he buys me a plane ticket, sends me off to Ohio. In Boston. Yeah, from Boston. It was on my birthday, January 9th, I remember. And I remember arriving in Columbus, Ohio, and I don't know who it was that picked me up from the airport, but somebody picked me up from the airport and drove me to the school. And being from a big city in Boston and showing up at this little tiny town in Ohio— and yeah. all I could remember is it smelled horrible mm-hmm. because the paper factory down mm-hmm. the road, yeah. I mean, it was the worst smell I had ever mm-hmm. come across, but I got used to it. And then there was like just a handful of cabins and I'm living in this tiny little cabin with a handful of other people. And it was just an experience, but it was an experience I'll never forget. I mean, it was that long ago and I still remember it like it was yesterday.
1: Man, the shock of that, huh? You were coming from Boston. Imagine coming from Denmark or something. and <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you know, coming I to know the I had Matthew somebody from
0: London in my program. Yeah,
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, from all over the world. You know, the school's still going on.
0: I told the wife I want to drive by. It's about an hour and a half away from you right yeah, now. Yeah,
1: just right up the road from you. Cincinnati. Yeah. Well, you, hey, you know, interesting, like a time capsule here, but back to Joe's band, some really great players in that band. I, I, I had no idea really what I was, what I had fallen into, you know. But the still guitar player's name's Tom Boffman, and uh, this is '83. And Tom left Chilcote. He's from Chilcote. He, he left and uh, became a, a player down here when Opryland was happening. Opryland was basically a theme park, and yep. a lot of musicians, the Diamond the Rio guys, met there. And I mean, you know, it was just really quite a launching pad. But anyway, so Tom Boffman called me the other day. His son is 19 years old, and he's really into audio, and he's really into drums, and he wanted to know if I could help him out. And so he's working with me now, his son, 19 years oh, old, cool. doing shop work, and he's out doing some touring w- with me on this artist that I'm out with. But ain't that crazy, man?
0: It's crazy how it all comes around. And I was living in New York after going to the recording workshop. I went back to Boston, worked in a couple studios there for a little while. And then I moved to New York and actually opened a studio. I had a studio built from the ground up and it was beautiful. And I was sitting there at the time and I was at the dining room table and I was just looking at a Shania Twain CD and there was a magazine, a mixed magazine next to it. And I opened up the mixed magazine and I see the school SAE and I was like, I want to go teach there. Okay. And my <laughs> friends are like, yeah, okay, that's going to happen. And then I opened up the CD <laughs> i open up the cd and i see bob bullock's name in it i said i'm gonna go work for bob bullock okay and they're like yeah all right so i packed my stuff up and just left everything my house i had just bought a house i opened the studio i packed it all up and drove to nashville and the very next day i walked into the the school to say i want to work here and they sent me up to this office i walk in the office and it's you and you are the head instructor at the school and I'm like, oh hey, <laughs> you know, fancy meeting you here. And then you ended up Crazy. eventually connecting me to that job and I worked yeah. there for years.
1: I was a Jay Franzi advocate. You gotta hire this guy. You gotta hire this guy. So it was uh, too
0: funny to me though. I mean, because you know, last I saw you before that was in Chillicothe yeah. at the school.
1: Yeah. Well man, I tell you what, you, you were in this business long enough, it gets small.
0: It does. It <laughs> really know. does. So, I mean, as we're talking about that and you talk about, you started by playing drums and obviously you're engineering now Mm -hmm. and you're even, you're doing a lot of live sound and you're on the road, Mm -hmm. which to me is always fascinating. But Mm -hmm. how does playing drums now play into the craft Mm. of engineering?
1: Interesting. man. you know, I think about that a lot. So, so I had a band I put together back in Ohio for the sole purpose of getting a record deal in nashville that was why i put this band together and we had a nashville producer uh, bill hierson crosby stills nash and young cream and and uh, he used to come to the workshop and lecture and so he was our producer and he was finding his songs and we were uh, out playing and traveling around doing the doing the van and the and the trailer tour doing the circuit in the early 90s you can make a living playing these these two step clubs, line dance clubs, four or five nights a week. You could, you know, you can make a living doing that. I say all over hell in half of Georgia, you know, but <laughs> so one of the stops on our circuit was Miss Kitty's. And again, this is all old old history, man, but it's but it's good history. Miss Kitty's in Atlanta, well Marietta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta, there was an institution. The house band prior to us was Uh, Travis Tritt, in his club days, he was the house band there, his country club band. As a matter of fact, country club video was shot at Miss Kitty's. And then after Travis got his deal, Danny Shirley with Confederate Railroad came in as the house band. So after uh, Danny vacated that, they needed a house band and they asked my band, Hank Law, if we would move down from Ohio and and take this house position. And and we just jumped on it. And it, and it, it made sense because we're only, what, three hours from Nashville. So our producer said it was a great idea. He could get label people to come down and see us, and we could showcase. And it doesn't hurt to have Miss Kitty's behind your name and and the (laughs) reputation that that place has, right? So but anyway, I know this is really hard to believe for people out there, but the band broke up. Yes, it did.
0: Bands break up?
1: Yeah, they do. They do. Hmm. So I ended up going to a club it's a 3,000 seat club there in Kennesaw Georgia called Cowboys a famous venue and every Friday night would be a national act coming in all the national acts from the 90s and we were a top 40 sweating jukebox band And you know we played all that 90s country music that we thought was kind of blase that everybody thinks is really cool right now. You know, <laughs> here's where this kind of comes around. The bass player, his name was uh, Randy Brown or RK, as he's known now. He's in Nashville now. But, oh, yeah, um,
0: I know Randy. You
1: know Randy? He was a bass he's player. He's played
0: on several sessions with me.
1: Man, he's amazing. Isn't he? And so he was the band leader in, in that band. And it was, it was a big stage. And, and you know, if you, you've worked with Randy, you, he can't see. Right. So, uh, you know, as, as a drummer... With a bass player, you, the bass player watches your foot, and you play off of that. Well, that doesn't happen with Randy. You know, he's not watching your foot.
0: Not, not if you're blind.
1: Exactly. So you better be landing on the quarter note, and you better be landing on the eighth note. And I tell you what, that guy would, like I could say, he's a band leader. We'd go on break, and he would just rip me to pieces, man. He would. <laughs> oh, you're tearing me apart. And I would get so mad at this guy. But, you know, determination. I'll show you, man. I'll show you. And so I would practice every day at my place. And I came up with a, like a, a drum book of exercises because I was raising a son and, and married. And my wife and I were in Atlanta with a boy and, and we didn't have any family down there. So I had, you know, had those responsibilities, but I had to practice or right? I would lose this job. You know what I mean? Anyway, I kind of came up with this little practice routine. So, focused on the click, every one of these patterns, uh, I I programmed the patterns, and at at that time, I think I was using Performer, you know, before MIDI and and audio was was married together, you know, you had just MIDI, and then you would have to lock MIDI up to Simti. you know, to your machine or whatever. But anyway, I would practice two or three hours a day with a click track, I mean, just... I mean, religiously practiced, and I got really good, you know. And so I guess to bring that full circle, my playing taught me a lot about pocket. And so when it comes to doing session work now and then then after that, I can tell you if the acoustic guitar is in the pocket with the drummer or the bass guitar is in the pocket with the drummer. So my playing really disciplined uh, me for tempos.
0: That's awesome. You don't think about it like that. You think you just go in and press a button and light turns red and everybody goes, but you have responsibility when you're in there. And the more musical you are, the more that you can not only capture a good sound, but you can actually make decisions and participate in some of the producing of the project itself. Mm -hmm. Where did it go from educating to recording or from educating to going on the road?
1: Well, uh, what I wanted to do was to teach and tour all at the same time, you know, a little little bit of both worlds. I really tried to create that. It was something that just wasn't achievable. You know, you, you know, when you teach, you pretty much have to dedicate yourself to it. When you tour, you, uh, you know, how that, that goes. I got pretty burnt out on, on teaching audio. So I'll take on some students, you know, but I, getting in front of a of a class, a large a group of, of students, really, it doesn't appeal to me anymore. I really got burned out on it. So I just basically just kind of cut that educational cord and, and just went full on touring.
0: So who was the first artist you went on the road with?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, I kind of played around with, uh, I, I know you had like Matt McClure on your show. I kind of played around like when I was at SAE, go out and doing some sub work for him. Uh, Steve Holy, yep. what a great singer! Yeah. So I suppose you know. I mean, I, I did some, I did some touring audio wise before coming to Nashville, but not any, not any name performers.
0: Well, you got several names behind you now.
1: <laughs> I've been fortunate, Jay. You know, and going back and talking about Randy and seeing him paired as a musician, but I, I was Ronnie Millsap's monitor engineer. Right. For um, many, many years. And uh, anybody who knows Ronnie, he's blind, you know, seeing impaired. Right. Just, uh, I mean, just incredible. I mean, I his keyboard text says he, he hears what only bugs and dogs hear. And right. and and being his monitor engineer, man, it took me to a whole nother level. My ears to a whole nother level, Jay. I, you know, you, you remember we had a program called Golden Ears. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yep. You know. And so you know you're all cocky and like oh yeah I can hear this and I can hear that I got golden ears <laughs> blah, blah blah. Well you know you get out there with Millsap you go well I got he's yeah I got golden ears. Yeah yeah I had no idea. So he was he he was the one that really even though I was mixing live audio wedges <laughs> you know he's a wedge mm-hmm. guy there was like 22 boxes up on the stage you know he was the one who uh, really turned around my the, the way I he, he, hear a studio. Mix all of his players had incredible ears. They would um when they were ringing out their monitors. They would all sweep, whoop, you know, like a human oscillators, and they would find right. holes and they would find frequencies that were building up. And oh uh, yeah, you know, I yeah, four hundred. I'm, I'm hearing four hundred. You know, Ronnie, but he didn't know about your your graphic EQ over there. But he bang out on the piano. They go, okay, baby, you know. Uh, See, that's you got 250 over there and 315. This is about 280. If you could just cut 3 dB of 250 in, in 4 dB of, of 315, we'll be able to take care of that. <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? So, amazing experience. Wouldn't trade that for nothing. And you know, I was, I was Ronnie's monitor guy and his front of house engineer, Kerry West, Gotti West's son, just amazing. I learned so much from him too. But you know, it just kind of got to the point, uh, uh, Jay, where I wanted to go out front and mix.
0: And before you do that, let me ask you a question about this. I mean, you're going out on the road with somebody who's, who, like we said, has his own set of golden or if not platinum ears. So what does it feel like when you're out there? What, what's going through your mind taking that first gig?
1: Oh man. Oh, it's, it, yeah, it's intense. And you know, you, you just got, you got to be confident in, in your abilities and don't let them see you sweat. you know? Um, <laughs> so it's not an easy gig. And now now to sum up that feeling, I've never parachuted probably something like that. Is my parachute going (laughs) to (laughs) open? You know what I mean? You know, at at that time, Jack, kind of thinking back through this, you know, I, I got a, a call from the Dean of a university here in town, Belmont university. And they knew my, my work at SAE and they needed a live audio teacher. So my interview with the dean was, I'll, I'll come and teach, but I tour. And so we discussed how much I tour. Uh, well, as long as you can be here on these days and be here the, for these showcases, you can continue the to tour. So right about that time, uh, Ronnie Millsap's position came open. And I interviewed for that as a phone interview, and uh, Ronnie's previous monitor engineer was one of my students at SAE, uh, Kirby. Oh, really? Yeah, Kirby was, and Ronnie loved Kirby, and he was pretty excited that he was going to get the monitor engineer who taught the monitor engineer that he loved so much. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so I kind of had that coming in. I had a little bit of, of like, he has some trust for me. He knows a little bit about my past. But, you know, first time uh, dealing with Ronnie and the way the monitor engineer had to set up with uh, Ronnie, his piano would, would face you. And you had to learn how to read his facial expressions, whether something was wrong or not. That's the way he, he communicated. Basically, right. with you, you could tell after a while. You could tell if something wasn't right, you know. And we had uh, there was I don't know four different mixes around the stage, and the level of those mixes is how he could tell where he was in space. You know what I mean? So that the downstage mix versus the mix to his his right, he he would know that he would just be able to hear the distance between those two. So if he got up from the piano, he would kind of have an idea how far to go. It, I know it's a crazy thing to to think about. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a legend. He had 40 number one hits and right. it was an intense position. I think he really liked me as a monitor guy. I, I think he didn't want to see me go. So anyway, I was doing, I guess Ronnie was doing 50 or 60 dates a year a, at that time. And I was holding down a full-time job at, at Belmont teaching. And, and I think the students really liked the, the fact that their instructor was touring and was doing that for a living, you know, teaching them, live audio and i was doing live audio so yeah and it kind of turned out to be where i just wasn't a campus guy you know and they wanted me there more and more and my heart wasn't in it man i i enjoyed touring too much you know so but anyway we we parted ways
0: so what was your first front of house gig then
1: well you know you know um you i'm sure you can relate to this and most people can but back at the workshop we recorded a lot back there you know when on the weekends they would open up the studios for the instructors because if you remember school was only monday through friday and then saturday and sunday the instructors would go into the studios and we would camp out the entire weekend and record bands and do our record
0: i remember being invited to a couple of those
1: yeah uh columbus was a fantastic music scene up there cincinnati you know jay Uh, amazing talent so what ended up happening then is these groups would you would do the record with them and you know you know all the effects you know the songs and things like that. So when they go out to do a uh, their record release party, they would go, hey, since you know all the songs, you know our effects, you know this, blah did you come out and mix our show? And that's what got me into it. It not knowing really anything about it.
0: Well, that's a good point because it truly is a different skill set. Yeah. And recording and mixing a record, even recording and mixing could be considered a different skill set so now that you throw in live sound what's that transition like for you?
1: Well you know the biggest difference the biggest difference in studio and live sound is, is that in, in the studio you know, it's a controlled environment you know I know you have a nice room there Jay, you know acoustically treated and you don't have any standing waves and you know things aren't bouncing off the concrete floors and bouncing off of steel and that kind of... So the biggest the biggest challenge for anybody doing live audio, I mean, still to this day, is the acoustic environment. That's the biggest one. With where things are, are now, I, I carried my own digital console. Everything is... It's dialed in. So all, all I have to do, or all I have to do, which can be really uh, a lot of work, is I have to make the room as neutral as possible. Right. You know? So my program mix will fit within that room where it isn't too base heavy or too bouncy or too bright or too mid rangey or uh, that kind of a thing. So, so that, that's the biggest challenge. That's, I guess that's kind of why I like outdoor shows. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have any you interference. Yeah. Right. The bounce off of, and you know, you can get into some of these venues that, you know, some of these places they put entertainment is just like you question it. Why would you put a stage here? You know, it's all steel and it's all concrete and it's just, there's no way you're going to make a mix sound good. So, but that's the toughest, that's probably the toughest part is, is just dealing with the acoustics.
0: Do you consider that a challenge and try to beat it?
1: Of course. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're
0: all competitive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to be defeated, but, um, <laughs> you know, you, you learn your tricks you know what I'm saying? And, and, and then after you tour enough, you, you get repeat rooms. I tried for a while to save like EQ for this room or EQ for that room, and it, it changes. Never really it, works. That never really works, you know, because your console file changes too, and you're, you might well, have a different so drum I mean, or
0: The amount of people that are in the room could change The amount it. of
1: people in the room, totally.
0: That's crazy. People don't think about that, but the human body absorbs frequencies just like any any other soft surface.
1: When you're sound checking, your space is empty. So you're getting a lot of reflections, a lot of bounces and things like that. And you just kind of have to anticipate what the audience, you know, I always check with the promoter and find out how many seats are sold. <laughs> Maybe kind of curious why I want to know that, because I, I just want to know how much uh, sound is going to be absorbed in, in what right. areas. I, you know, I, I'll ask, you know, is the balcony sold? you know, that kind of a thing, whereas an arena is the top layer. So right. that, just, just so you know, because the bodies of water is going to, they're going to absorb a lot of your a lot of your sound. So you kind of have to anticipate that.
0: And there's a lot of arenas that they don't sell the top portion or they can't sell it, either way you want to look at it, Yeah. or they don't sell behind the stage. So there's a lot of yeah. hard surfaces that never get covered.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You went on the road with... Exile, and you also worked in the studio with them. Mm -hmm. So which came first, the road or the studio?
1: (laughs) You answer the best questions, Jay. Um, So the Exile position actually came through uh, a a guy in Cincinnati, Gary Kervis, who had an agency called Second Street Entertainment. And I knew Gary from back in the Ohio days, and and Exile was looking for a front of house guy, and, and Gary called me about it and this is when I was with Ronnie and uh, I say I went, I wanted to move into a front of house position from monitors. I mean, nothing, you know, nothing wrong with somebody being a monitor engineer. Usually there's, right. there's a lot more opportunity in this business for monitor engineers and there are <laughs> front of house guys. There's just too many front of house guys. But so anyway, so I took the exile position based on um, wanting to mix front of house more, uh, you know, move away. And so, you know, we, they were recording and I'd be on the bus with them. They'd be talking about so-and-so engineer recording with so-and-so engineer and doing this and doing that. And every time they, every time they would do that, I would raise my hand. I do studio engineering. And then then, they talk about it. I raised my hand again. Hey, how about me? How about me over here? You know? And so I I just kept on bugging them. And so what, (laughs) what it ended up, happening was they they had just gotten back together uh, and they were celebrating 50 years in music
0: all original years. members too right
1: yeah original five and um they wanted to do a dvd at the franklin theater you know that theater well i'm sure and so i recorded it and brought it back here to my home studio and and mixed it and um, you know, did the editing and things like that, and it, it, man, it, it's just an awesome live record. So, I guess I kind of gained their trust that way. Very cool. Using the live audio thing and recording the show, which I do that. I record every show these days. You know, I, I got a, a mix on on LV Shane, the artist I'm with now, by recording him live at, at the basement east here in town.
0: Do you multi-track it or stereo?
1: Yeah, multi-track the Pro Tools. Really? Yeah, Dante. You know, just Dante out of my console. Pro Tools is running every night. <laughs> you know, and then um, you know sometimes we get lucky. We got we got the multi tracks. Some bands like to do a lot of fixes. Some bands don't want to do fixes. Yeah, I re- I record every night, and and I I use you know I try to use really good quality microphones out on the road, but also mics that will withstand the abuse of the of the road. Sure. You know, so I get pretty pretty good pretty good recordings. So anyway, so then uh, Exile decides they're going to do a Christmas record. And they let me do that. So I cut a Christmas record on them. And then then they decided to go back and do all their hits digitally. So I recorded the hits record. And now I'm still, rec- I'm not touring with them, but I'm still recording them. They were just here and finished 14 songs and I cut drums and bass and keys here at my place. Amazing material, JP and Sonny with the band is just writing great stuff. And and they take it down to uh Paul down at County Q. You know Paul. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh and Paul mixes it. So I'm still working with them, man. I you know, even though we're not uh even though I'm not on the road with them, we're still pals, buddies, and 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 work together. And it's been a great relationship with those guys.
0: That's pretty cool. So, I mean, it's got to be cool for you. I mean, cause we talk about this a lot that live sound engineers typically don't get to work in the studio too much. And yeah. once the studio engineer goes on the road, they lose their contacts and the relationships they have with producers, yeah. you turn down one or two gigs and you never get to work again. People think, well, if you're a live sound engineer, your ears aren't good enough to be in the studio. But I don't think that's true. I think that it's just a different set of things that you're tuned into. And especially, like you mentioned earlier, with frequencies, to know the frequencies that well, that comes in extremely handy in the studio. There's no doubt in in my mind that that's a a benefit to you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're out there on the road with this band. You, You show them that you have what it takes, even if it's persistence, to get into the studio. What's that like are you nervous going into the studio at that point?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, you you yeah, I mean you're nervous at the point you want to do good, you know, and and they'll test you.
0: You've recorded a thousand times before that, but yeah, when somebody you have to convince to let you do it, that's a, a little bit more anxiety, I guess.
1: Well, that's kind of fun though, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, no,
1: that's kind of the fun. A, that's kind of the fun. Like we part. said I earlier, like, it's a I'll, challenge. I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll show you what yep. what's happening here. And I think the longer we're in this business, the more confident we become.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: I'm pretty confident in what I do right now. Everything I do isn't exactly up to where I would want it to be, but uh, you know, I, I I go into a show with, with with a lot of confidence, and I think probably Jay a lot of that comes from your troubleshooting skills builds your confidence in that in a live environment anything can go wrong at any time but you're confident in, in terms that you've been through so many devastating scenarios you know with gear breaking and things like that your workarounds that you know you you build your confidence and, and that you can handle most most situations you know uh you know, you you had Matt McClure on, on your show, and, yeah. and Matt's a, a good friend of both of ours. And Matt was an awesome front-of-house guy uh, right. with Tanya and... Mm,
0: Tanya Tucker, Steve Holy.
1: But you know what you said? He, he came off the road because he wanted to do studio stuff, and if he was on the road, he wasn't getting that call. So, man, I was really determined that you could do both because I love both. Man, there's nothing there's nothing like live mixing. I, I mean, it, it, it's a thrill, man. It is, it is intense. Every time that intro starts and downbeat happens, you know, it's like jumping out of an airplane. I've never done that bungee jumping or what, I mean, anything could go wrong at at, at any time.
0: Well, that's a, a good point. You're a musician as well as an engineer. So which do you find more gratifying to be the drummer on stage or to be the guy at the front of house?
1: Definitely the front of house guy, you know, because you have control of everybody. I'm a control freak. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can I got control of the guitar players, the drum. I, you, you know what I mean? You're you're not, you're not conducting an orchestra or a symphony or anything like that, but but you're you're the one putting the puzzle together.
0: You kind of are,
1: yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of gratification in, in making that mix happen with all those musicians.
0: Well, also, you got instant feedback from the crowd. Yeah. If you're mixing a live show and something goes over well, you hear it. You hear it right then and there. I always enjoyed mixing. That's my favorite part, mixing in the studio. Yeah. So I always enjoyed having a physical record that you could put in your car and you drive down the street and listen to a CD or you hear something on the radio. To me, that was always great. And I've done a handful of shows at this point, but never enough to just feel that exhilaration from a live crowd like that. A couple times, but that's...
1: I know we don't have much time, but let me put this one here real quick. Sure. So you had Jeff King on your show, He's the band leader for Brooks & Dunn. He's a master. Oh, Jeff is awesome. He's just no, uh, he's a quality person, just an amazing player. But the the artist I'm with, I'll be we, we were on the Brooks & Dunn tour, the reboot tour, and one of the shows that we did was at Frontier Days in Cheyenne, Wyoming, opening up for Brooks and Dunn. And it's like 20,000 people sold out a massive outdoor, it's a rodeo, you know, Frontier Days rodeo. And so uh, we were on a rain delay. So the rain delay meant that we didn't get a sound check. You know, Brooks and Dunn got their sound check. We got a little line check. I kind of checked everything. So 20,000 people, I step up to the console. My sound check is the first song. So, you know... (laughs) It's intense. You know, your heart's pounding and, you, you know, th- this could be my last job. This could be it. I, you don't have no idea what's going to happen. I guess it's that kind of a feeling that, I don't know, I, I live for that. <laughs> I mean, I want to sound check. Of course, I want to sound check. But, sure. but I, I don't know. S- something about that Something about that uh, jumping, you know, without a, that trapeze, challenge? without a net or something. But
0: I'll tell you, Tony, I mean, you were one of the biggest inspirations, if not, you know, mentors going through the whole process, starting from 1989 and going through SAE and, you know, even afterwards just following your career, just, it's definitely a, a pleasure and pleasure having you here too. I mean, I mean, you brought me into SAE and put me in as an instructor without any idea of what, what I was capable of doing. Uh, you. Did and that. I mean, I owe it all to you for that. Nice. But speaking of which, I mean, we do this thing here, sir, that we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a little time to shine the light on somebody who works behind the scenes that might not typically get a little bit of light shined on. Do you have anybody that you'd like to shine a little light on?
1: Man, I tell you, it's got to be my wife, Nancy. I mean we've been through it all. You know, we, we've been married almost 40 years. I, I met Nancy at the recording workshop.
0: Back at the recording workshop.
1: Yeah. If you remember, she was working in the office there and, you know, we started dating and we were married in six months and, you know, we moved from Ohio to Atlanta to Nashville. and She stuck with me through the tough times. She's been my financial and moral support. She's the only one who really knows the work that's been, that's gone into this, you know, and, had some advice i worked at a nuclear enrichment plant okay so my boss there his name is mcfarland and, and his, his son was a opera singer in new york city and i said mac i said and I, of course i probably shouldn't be telling my boss this but it's like i think i'm really going i'm going to dedicate myself to music i, I you know i think i that's my calling and you know and i know your son does this in new york and do you, do you have any advice he says yeah get a wife with some medical insurance <laughs> So there you go. Thank you, Nancy, for the insurance.
0: (laughs) Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Tony truly is one of the best. In his determination, it should be an inspiration to all of us. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzy.com dot com slash episode 19. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at Jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives, made by a true rock star. So, if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528 407-421-5528